Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we're discussing the 1974 disaster movie classic, The Towering Inferno, starring a murderer's row of movie stars, including Paul Newman as the architect of the titular Towering Inferno, Steve McQueen as the local fire chief in charge of putting out the blaze, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, a young O.J. Simpson, and many more. Uh, this episode was sponsored by one of our very generous Patreon sponsors, Megan, and neither of us had ever seen it before. I would think it's safe to say that we both agree, uh, enjoyed this movie very much. Yes. This is, yeah, this is like <laughs> an old-school blockbuster. Um, I can kind of see why it's not continued to have sort of the same classic status as something like Jaws but um, apart from the fact that it's 2 hours and 45 minutes long which is an absurd length, great movie and like all round there was just a lot of interesting material here there was a great deal of well researched detail about fire regulations which we will definitely be discussing (laughs) (laughs) yes, this movie is available at the moment on the various HBO channels so it is easily accessible and is definitely one of the 70s blockbusters that even if i hadn't seen it and even if it isn't as ubiquitous as jaws like the title alone the title's very famous i only knew the title i would have i mean it's self-explanatory i could guess that it was about a big building going on fire but the cast list is gobsmacking as morgan said it's the style of disaster movie where they have dozens and dozens of side characters who all get into, you know, various scrapes. So there's some adorable children and there's like a grandmother and there's, you know, all of these random and men who I couldn't tell the difference between who are all at this party. I don't know. It was great. And you've got your kind of classic conflict between a sensible person who's like, we all have to do something safe. And then a bunch of idiots who are like, no, let's all burn to death. Um, which is done in a more serious fashion in Chernobyl and in a very silly fashion in basically every disaster movie ever made. It's a lot like Titanic or whatever. Yes. A film I have never seen and maybe will one day. Did not know that. Yeah, well, it's just like this, but instead of fire regulations, it's romance. (laughs) (laughs) As like the secondary genre. (laughs) Yeah, so... Reading, I did some reading about this film, as we do before we record, and found some amazing gems looking, <laughs> looking stuff up. The basic background is, obviously, you know, there are several films of this ilk from the 1970s. The big producer behind this movie was named Irwin Allen, and he had previously produced uh, The Poseidon Adventure, which had also been a huge hit and did not have as starry a cast yeah and he was also a director so he like both produced and directed a bunch of disaster slash kind of action sci-fi movies yeah and one of the interesting things reading about this reading some of the reviews from the time is the degree to which he is really credited as kind of like the author of this movie well in the in the starting credits which Go on for fucking ever. There's like three minutes of starting credits in this movie, which does not happen anymore. It literally says that there was credits, action sequences directed by Erwin Allen. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, something's happened behind the scenes here. We'll look into that later. (laughs) My impression from reading about the production of the movie, and like, I obviously have no idea. I have no 
inside information about this movie that was made in 1974. But I would guess it wasn't so much like a drama in the production history and more just like this guy was powerful and he was yeah, like, Irwin this Allen is my was disaster like the movie. captain and, you know, he hired the director. And like John Gillerman isn't a particularly well-known, in fact, he's not remotely a well-known name now, but he had a really long career and he made a lot of big sort of mainstream blockbuster films. He did a bunch of Tarzans, King Kongs, that kind of thing in the 60s, 50s, 70s. And he also did the Death on the Nile uh, film that was made in the 70s that we watched last year. Yes. You perhaps don't remember it because it's not good. (laughs) It was very 70s. I remember it's like when you can tell that historical drama was made in a particular decade and it's like, oh, this is like the 1910s, but like in the 1970s. (laughs) Everyone's got like Farrah Fawcett hair. (laughs) Yes. And... There was a Murder on the Orient Express a couple years before that movie with, I think, the same guy playing Poirot, although I'm not sure, that was done by, I think, Sidney Lumet. And I watched that a couple months ago, and it's great. And so it's not just that, like, the 70s poisoned or cool Poirot. It's that that movie specifically is not good. And I haven't seen any of his other films, so, like, I do not want to tarnish his reputation on this podcast based on having seen 1.5 of his movies. But I do get the sense that Alan, the producer, was like, I have a vision for all of the fire stunts. Yeah, and they were great. They were really imaginative. I will say one final point on John Gillerman is if you go to his Wikipedia page, there is a very extensive section labeled personality, which is always an intriguing detail. And there's a lot of kind of conflicting quotes from people arguing about whether he was an unbearable person or not. Um, so, so clearly either John Gellerman has a very kind of dedicated fan who made a very detailed Wikipedia page, or he definitely had what was referred to as a personality and people like to talk about it in interviews after they'd worked with him. Yes. But, uh, the, the way this movie was advertised somewhere in one of the articles I found, I now can't recall which one, although I'll link to all of them. He says that they advertised like five great romances in this movie which is very funny because no is it the romance between steve mcqueen and fire regulations like (laughs) (laughs) that's the only compelling romance in this movie but there are these kind of shoehorned in romance plots which are amusing to varying degrees, I would say. But none of them are actually emotionally compelling. Like, that's no. <laughs> not why you're watching this movie. I was right? like, fine. <laughs> and all of the, contemp- the contemporary reviews that I read totally focus on the special effects being great, which they are. And, like, the action sequences being great. But the entire first hour, basically, of this movie is just, like, people walking around this building talking and so someone had to direct that and clearly Erwin Allen was like fuck that I'm not bothering with this shit like you go handle that and let me worry about my fire stunts which sure I mean mean, it creates a really interesting structure because I mean obviously all disaster movies have to have like a kind of certain element of slow burn at the beginning of course but in this first of all we also have to have this extensive sequence where we're introduced to the dozens of characters Um, But also, because it's so realistic in its detail, it kind of 
shows how extremely slow the fire is and how grueling the process of fighting the fire is. Because, you know, there's like a small electrical fire in a closet within like the first 15 to 20 minutes, you know, while you're being introduced to everyone. But because the fire hasn't started to spread yet, you've still got this whole extended period of people acting normally, which is very reflective of like what happens in a real disaster unless it's literally just like a nuclear explosion or something. And then once the fire really gets going, like you have the fire department are called like pretty early in the film. They're called in the first half because obviously you've got to get Steve McQueen in there because he's the fire chief. And they go into the building and you have all this detail about them like whether they can use which lifts and like they don't evacuate people because they're like oh there's only fire on this floor so everyone can stay on the other floors and all this kind of stuff so you see kind of how slow the fire spreads but also it's really scary because it's inexorable you know metaphorically and literally but kind of before we go into that I just wanted to like mention skyscrapers because obviously this is the quintessential skyscraper movie but as it started I was like first of all just in love with the 1970s interiors here. It was kind of a sequel to Mad Men situation, except obviously contemporary at the time where they had these vast sort of orange offices with lots of unique carpet choices, which would never be made today. And because it's like an architecture firm that we're visiting at first, because um, Paul Newman's protagonist character is the guy who designed the tower. Of course, he looks like very cool and he's got a very cool big open plan office. But also I was watching it and I was like, oh yeah, there's just so many fucking movies, especially American movies that were made in the 20th century. They're all about skyscrapers. And a lot of them are all about sort of the failures of like capitalism or the dangers of like man's hubris or whatever. And I was like, what film did I watch recently that had this really great depiction of a very similar scenario where it's this really high tech uh, building and it's really showing the anxieties of the period to do with mechanized workplaces and futuristic technology going wrong and everyone being stuck in this like high rise in New York. And I was like, oh, I remember what this really insightful movie was. It was Gremlins 2. <laughs> Which is actually a great movie, but um, fucking obviously it's fucking Gremlins too. But that is the film which is closest to this. And then the more serious stuff would be like High Rise, which is a more recent movie with Tom Hiddleston, but is based on an older book, which is kind of social commentary set around sort of anxieties of being in one of these high-tech isolating tower blocks. But in this case, it's kind of this classic situation where oh, we're going to have this amazing city of the future where you get everything in one building that stretches up to the stars. So, you know, they've got all these offices, but they've also got apartments and everything looks really luxurious and they're just ready to open. And so that means they're having this massive glitzy party, which means there was pressure not to evacuate because it's bad PR and because you've got all of these big wigs hobnobbing around in their ball gowns. And then like three floors down, the place is exploding. Uh, so, you know, you've got your metaphors in there. Yes, although I do think the metaphorical oomph of the movie is significantly lessened by the degree to which it is explicitly propaganda for the fire code. (laughs) And, like, against skyscrapers, not as a symbol of anything, but as literal buildings. In a very detailed manner, they are like, please stop building really tall skyscrapers just to show how impressive you are. Because they will go on fire. Firefighters can't go up above a certain level because it's too tall. And um, of course, the problem here was cost cutting, which has 
been a problem in many cases since then in skyscrapers. And I did actually find an interview with the screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, which was really interesting and quite funny in a sort of morbid way. And this was actually published in 1988, over a decade after the film came out. And clearly the LA Times kind of called him up for him to write an article because there had been a really massive, disastrous fire at the first interstate bank building in LA in 1988. And, you know, it caused kind of lots of comparisons to the towering inferno. And he actually talks in this article about how he researched the film and how it ended up being the way it was and the result afterwards. And he says, my first consultant was a fire marshal in San Francisco. We met for lunch in a basement restaurant and he chose a table directly under a ceiling sprinkler. I was amused until he told me that he never slept or ate above the third floor. The man was definitely a weirdo, I told myself, until as the interview progressed, he began to educate me about fires and death by smoke inhalation and by toxic fumes from burning designer furniture. He acquainted me with the enemy, property owners, some builders, some architects, but a powerful opposition lobby against the proposals advanced by life safety experts. And kind of in this article, he talks about like, you know, he put all this research into making sure the film was realistic, which is abundantly clear when you watch it. And then after the film came out, apparently loads of builders and architects were like pissed as hell because this movie made them look bad. But then firefighters were like sending awards and honorary fire marshal helmets to the producer Irwin Allen because they were like, thank you. And then some major American cities passed legislation to enforce stricter fire codes. So it worked. The propaganda worked. (laughs) And then also he says in the same article, high rise fires soon began killing people all over the world. I mean, what's so kind of funny about it structurally, right, is that there's this character who is the son-in-law of the, so William Holden plays the guy who's like in charge of this development. And the, son-in-law of that character is this weaselly Jared Kushner fellow who is responsible for the sort of shortcuts in the materials that he's purchased to do all the building works that has led to it being vulnerable to fire. And Paul Newman figures this out sort of earlier in the day that this movie takes place on and confronts him and he's totally unrepentant and is like, well, it was cheap. It saved us money. Like nobody asked any questions, blah, blah, blah. And he's totally loathsome. He's the most loathsome character in the movie for sure. He dies ignominiously as he should, but he is not the bad guy of the movie, right? Like he does not have very much screen time at all. No one in this movie has that much screen time really outside of Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. And even they, it's such an ensemble that they don't have as much screen time as they would in a, movie where you're playing a traditional lead. The bad guy of the movie is the fire, clearly. And I was thinking about Die Hard the whole time this movie was playing because it clearly influenced that movie so much in the sense that so much of the action of this movie is about people making their way through like the interiors of a huge building like this, well, right? Before you continue with this anecdote, the actual origin story of Die Hard the novel on which Die Hard is based was written after the author saw The Towering Inferno and then had a dream about the movie The Towering Inferno. So it is very directly referential. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, Die Hard, there are a bunch of people trapped in one part of the building and John McClane is like running around through the pipe ducts and whatever. But the structure of that movie is that there is a person who is like the bad guy and is keeping all of them hostage and the good guy has to like fix it, right? 
Whereas this, it's just this, it's a disaster. It's a different kind of structure. And yes, there are two sort of main heroic manly characters, but it's such a huge ensemble that you're jumping around people the whole time. So structurally, the movies are pretty different. And that gets back to this sense that like, the real ideas the movie is getting at is less about society and graft. And like when the first, at first they're talking about like the corruption behind like payouts and like shortcuts in the building. I was like, yes, like I love this shit. Like I love stuff to do with, you know, you know, urban buildings and whatever. But that's really not what the movie's getting at, even though it is important. The movie is literally just obsessed with fire safety and the fact that skyscrapers are really bad and dangerous to a degree that is like obsessive and the characters <laughs> give monologues about it. And I'm like, I respect it. I was like, that's what you want to talk about. You know what? You've made this whole three hour blockbuster to get that across. I mean, it's you. basically the opposite of like that global warming movie that was made with Jake Gyllenhaal where it's like all of climate change happens over the course of 48 hours. And it's just like, this is the stupidest movie ever made. And it has the opposite effect because it's like, it's not educational. It doesn't give you any solutions. It turns the whole thing into like an absurd, just ridiculous event. Yes. And indeed, there are very few characters who you actually get to know who die in this. And it's like, the really evil guy who should die. There's like one token good character who, like, has to die, right? And then two people who die pretty near the beginning. This, like, executive at the company and his secretary who are having an affair. They are the dumbest people in the movie. They're idiots. Right. So stupid. I feel like the movie wants you to think that there's something romantic about their relationship, which obviously today you watch it and you're just like, I am going to throw up. But they are complete idiots. And... The movie doesn't actually explicitly explain that the way they handle dealing with the fire is the opposite of what you're supposed to do, but it also illustrates the opposite of what you're supposed to do, right? So, like, they're stuck in this room, the fire's outside, because they've been canoodling and the party's going on on another floor, and he, like, puts a wet towel around his head and is like, I'm gonna run out through it, which does not work, because you're supposed to fucking crawl under the smoke, as I learned in elementary school, like, hello. There were lots of stuff which I never never thought about since the age of about eight, when they tell you stuff like, oh, touch a doorknob to make sure it's not hot on the other side, kind of thing. <laughs> yes. And she, like, breaks open a window, which you are not supposed to do because it just, the air brushes in, right? And then, it, I mean, she just gets burned alive. And they're, like, they're just, just, they're the dumbest people. They die in horrible ways. And you're watching it and you're just like, that's right, because you're idiots. <laughs> and the movie is so kind of obsessed with this idea of handling this in the right way. And obviously there are people who are just kind of stuck in the right wrong places and then have to be heroically rescued by Paul Newman, which, like, is fine. But it felt very telling to me that it has a couple idiots who, like, do it the wrong way and then theatrically burn to death and, like, fall out of the skyscraper, right? To be like, now, now, children, remember, listen to the lessons you're being told. So we've alluded to these various famous people. The cast, as we keep saying, is pretty wild. I think that the two biggest cameos for me were definitely O.J. Simpson and uh, the guy who played Napoleon Solo in The Man from U.N.C.L.E., who's playing, like, a senatorial candidate or something, and I was like, oh my god, it's Napoleon Solo! <laughs> yes, I did not recognize him because I have never seen that show. Uh, O.J. Simpson, 
I mean, it is surreal, obviously, now to see him in one of these early roles. He has a pretty significant supporting role in the first half of the movie, I would say. Have you ever seen him in anything before? No, I don't think I've seen him in anything. I might have done, like, before, like, if I was young and didn't recognize him. But it's interesting to see him in this, because this is probably, like, his most high, one of his most high-profile movie roles. But, like... He's really good looking and his role is literally to be just like a lovely good person who's right all the time. And I was like, oh, the many angles in which the pop culture was uh, making him look really good. I saw him. I'm trying to find. I saw him in the Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, which came out in 1991, which was uh, not long before the end. Uh, Yes, thanks to my dad. I believe it was that. Or maybe, or no, he was in all three Naked Gun movies, so I think I've only seen the first Naked Gun, which was 88. The last Naked Gun film, which he filmed, was 94. It's like a big comedy role that he's in, and he's funny in those movies. And I remember watching that years ago with my dad and just being like, this is the weirdest fucking thing I've ever experienced, watching him, like, clown around. And yeah, it's just very strange. In this, he's so young. He's obviously extremely recognizably O.J. Simpson, but it's like removed enough from the O.J. Simpson of the 90s, right? I didn't really know how old he was, like, in real life. I kind of didn't realise he was as old as he is. He's 73, so I was sort of like, I don't know when this is in the O.J. Simpson timeline. Yeah, I mean, just compared to, like, the images you know of him from the 90s, right? Like, he is still, he's a very recognisable person, but, like, he just looks different. But it is pretty bizarre to see him, like, acting with Paul Newman. Like, they literally, like, run around together in a couple scenes, and you're like, what? Like, just feels wrong. So that's pretty odd. But uh, there's a great quote from Richard Chamberlain, who plays the Weasley son-in-law, who I was mentioning earlier. And he says, the way Irwin Allen got all the stars is he paid them a lot of money. The set was like a perpetual A-list party. I've never seen so many glittery people in one place. (laughs) I just love the idea of some interviewer asking, like, so how did he get all those people? And he's like, Money. Like, that is the answer. Yeah, because it's not like they're getting, like, meaty roles. Yes. Susan Blakely, one of the other actors in the movie, says, McQueen and Newman each got a million, the most any actor had ever been paid at that point. Steve said he did the movie to pay for his kids' college. Love it. Love it. The Jude Law defense. Yep. (laughs) I had also never seen Steve McQueen in anything except for, like, 10 minutes of a movie I tried to watch a couple months ago that I found so bad I could not continue. So that was interesting for me just to see him in a movie. He's really good in this. I I don't think that I've seen any of like the really big classic Steve McQueen's, but I have seen his first movie, which is The Blob, which the title kind of suggests that it's really bad and stupid, but it's actually a great movie and he is great in it. Um, So if you want to watch The Blob, which is like a really classic 1950s sort of short sci-fi B-movie, it's kind of like an observational drama about teenage life in the rural 1950s, which isn't something you'd expect. So um, yeah, good actor, right from the get-go. Yeah, in this he's playing someone who is just like, I am in charge, I know all the rules, I am right about everything, and I am very annoyed that people are stupid. (laughs) Which, like... He's very good at. His conflict is that people are idiots. There's no sense I mean, the thing of- is, he's perfect casting here. Because, like, Steve McQueen is, like, 
the idol of a certain kind of man. And this character is what a certain kind of man thinks they are. They're like, oh, I'm the authority figure who knows how to fix like everyone's broken car. It's like, you're not. But Steve McQueen's character, fictionally speaking, is. Right. And Paul Newman gets a girlfriend and gets to have like some conflict because he feels bad about overlooking the safety measures. But beyond that, he too is very heroic. Which yes, is all you want, a really. Very heroic man. I was quite glad that like early on there's a scene where you see that he is actually like really upset and traumatized by someone being seriously injured in front of him and he's like really freaked out and O.J. Simpson's character has to like get him out of it and get him to do something and I was like I'm glad they put that in because like the rest of the movie is just him being like I'm an action hero. Yes there's a great scene where he rescues some children over a destroyed staircase that lasts for a really long time. It's like not complicated but it struck me that a lot of action directors today could do to watch that and realize that you don't need to do complicated things you just need to like present an obstacle and then show people solving it that one also released me because it's quite a specifically realistic scenario because it's like he's got to try and get this old woman and these two kids down from like an upper level and the only thing between them is this piece of sort of metal that's come out of the wall or something but it's really bouncy because it's like a really long piece of bouncy metal and they have to figure out how to like climb up and down this thing and it's like that is not that's not kind of like a cliche that's not like something you've seen in any other action film so it provides like an interesting location which is kind of the number one rule of action writing is location first you figure out something cool to put the action scene in And then once you've kind of built essentially your Lego background, then you can put all the characters around in there like figurines and figure out how to make drama. Yeah. And I guess technically, spoiler alert, like you're never really that concerned he's going to drop a kid down the building, right? (laughs) Like (laughs) They literally save the cat in this movie. Like one third into the movie, they introduce a cat and you're like, oh, I wonder who's going to save the cat at the end. (laughs) Yes. I mean- it occurred to me at some point during this film that if you were afraid of heights, this would be a fucking nightmare. Because so much of the fear is of various sequences revolves around heights. Yeah, I mean, they've got, like, Chekhov's lift shafts, like, introduced oh my God. right at the beginning. Everywhere. <laughs> and I am not afraid of heights, but this scene is so precarious that you can- you cannot help but be nervous, right? And... Even though you know what's going to happen, it's so well-constructed and so simple. And the physical acting is so successful that it's really gripping. So I was thinking about how much these kinds of movies get shot on green screen now. And how the actors are all these like huge human growth, growth hormone And there's a sort of physicality that is often lost. Obviously not in every case, but that is often the case. And in this, like, you see Paul Newman, like, hauling himself back up this thing repeatedly. And so the sense of it being an actual task that is accomplished is quite real, even if the thing isn't actually there. Like, of course, they're not actually doing this over an empty shaft. But, like, he is pulling himself back up that like, piece of metal, because you're watching him do it. And so there's a tact- like, sort of a tactile quality to it. 
And also it's the 70s, so like everyone looks really real and also everyone looks incredibly 70s because as we said, the production design and costumes in this are extremely of their time. But also the 70s, I don't know what was going on with like either lighting or possibly developments in hair products, but like hair texture is like so fucked up in 1970s movies, (laughs) like on a regular basis. And like so many characters, including like really gorgeous women in this movie, have like what it would now be considered to be like, not like curly, but like frizzy, like weird staticky hair. And like everyone has wrinkles because it's olden times before everyone was like Botox to hell. It was a peculiar era for fashion and a lot of people in this movie do not look, I guess, good but it's kind of a great aesthetic and I really enjoy it (laughs) I found myself totally fixated on how horrible an era it was for men's formal wear (laughs) yeah all those frilly shirts (laughs) and like William Holden who was at his peak in the 50s when he was you know the young hot hunk in Sunset Boulevard right and wearing very you know dashing tuxedos etc etc is wearing like a wrinkly bright red like satin tuxedo well it makes him look like he he like works for the building yes because he's like the big rich like building owner but like it looks like a bellboy uniform or something so like when he came in at the party scene because i can't tell the difference between all these white men i was like oh is this guy like the butler (laughs) it's just amazing and like there's this scene with fred astaire who plays this old guy who is kind of running a con on this older woman but like false oh he's so it's so amazing because oh. it's, it's also like i really would love to know to what extent this role was like very carefully tailored for fred astaire because it's almost like he is starring in a fred astaire movie inside the rest of the yes. film because he's playing a fred astaire character which is a charming but like lovable and not very threatening con man wearing a tuxedo like he has like Fred Astaire music in some of the background. Uh, the music in this I found generally completely forgettable. It's actually by John Williams, icon. But but during the Fred Astaire scenes, you've got some Fred Astaire music, and he did in the end earn his only ever Oscar nomination for this, which I can only imagine was all the Oscar voters panicking because they're like, "Shit, we've not given Fred Astaire an Oscar. Why?" And he was like seventy five, seventy six at the time. Yeah, he gets to do a tiny bit of dancing, right? But there's a scene right at the beginning where he's in this residential room in this building, and it is the most hideous room I have ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) It's got this, like, puce carpet, this, like, random mirror in the middle of the room, dingy fluorescent lighting, and it's not- it's meant to be nice, right? And it is just so ugly. And I thought, if you are Fred Astaire- and you were at your peak in the 30s and like the, you know, the rich 30s, right? Like, how does your brain process what has happened to the aesthetics of the United States? Like, I just can't even imagine what that must have been like. I, I wish I knew. Well, he was always famous for being like very, I mean, not persnickety, but like very specific about his image, both like on screen and off and being very controlled not in a sort of like controlling bastard way but like you know he was still like learning new sports at the age of 70 kind of thing i think this is the era just after he'd taken up skateboarding yes yeah and obviously he's clearly well up for it like he's in this like crazy movie at this age i mean it's just so funny to think about 
I mean, in terms of the interiors, like all of the smaller rooms, like obviously it's all filmed on sets, but that works really well for the big, like the big set pieces, because that is kind of how you see kind of photos and architectural drawings of these like really massive sort of ostentatious mid-20th century skyscraper situations. I mean, I've never been to the, the UN, but I think the UN is sort of like along those lines. I have been to the UN a number of times because I was in Model UN in high school and <laughs> it is very much of that era. Yes, the color scheme is quite something. And at least as of, you know, 10 plus years ago, everything was falling apart because they have no money. Yeah, that's also something I've heard from like in recent years. It is absolutely completely falling yeah. apart on the inside. It's something people often mention. But yeah, like all the smaller rooms in this movie all look so, like they're so obviously windowless. So I kept thinking of like, in Star Trek's original series where like you go into Captain Kirk's cabin and it's like got all this kind of like really glitzy like gaudy decor which is kind of like the bedroom that Paul Newman and Faye Dunaway have where they got this like he's got this like bedroom inside his office sure and it's got it's got all this like it's like this bachelor pad it's very funny but it's just not appealing in the slightest um so you know, some aesthetics just don't last. It's all really orange. And... Oh, so much orange. He's got, like, orange satin silk. They don't look like real silk. But they're clearly meant to be sort of silk sheets on this bed that are genuinely one of the ugliest things I've seen in a movie in a long, long time. I was mesmerized. I was just like, I cannot tear my eyes away. From this, and it matches his orange shirt. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I feel like obviously different movies are going for different looks. Of course, I mean that's a generic statement. But like, I watched The Eyes of Laura Mars recently, which is another Faye Dunaway movie from the late seventies. And by that point, there's a sort of kitsch value that kind of kicks in. And that movie is also about high fashion, so there's a much different thing going on with all the clothes in that film. And I also watched a couple early 70s movies, so more around this time recently, that were much more naturalistic. And some of the effects of the fashion at the time are still the same, where you look at it and you're like, this was so awful. Like, why did anyone wear this? But a lot of this, I think, also is just that it's a big studio movie and they're like, it's got to pop. So... <laughs> So we got to get the bright colors everywhere. And in retrospect, you watch it and you're just like, oh my God, what the fuck? Um, in a way that's really enjoyable, but it is quite ugly, which is funny. Faye Dunaway, whom we mentioned, is barely in this movie. It seems like a lost opportunity. There is a great quote about her in the New York Times review of this movie by Vincent Canaby, who I, which I will link to, which is an amazing, amazing review. He clearly enjoyed the movie, but it's in a way where he's like, great stunts, um, you know. <laughs> and he sort of has a whole list of the cast and like parentheses describing them. And the parenthetical describing Faye Dunaway is, the editor of a women's magazine who goes through the entire fire in a dress so sheer but indestructible that it becomes an engineering feat in itself. <laughs> I mean, it's truly the pinnacle of like lovely gowns. Yes. I mean, she just looks worried the whole time. She theoretically is, like, considering a job as this, you know, 
high-powered editor in a women's magazine. But they magazine. don't like they don't really pick up that subplot. Like no. they introduce it as like the conflict where it's like, oh, is she gonna take this job or is she gonna stay with her boyfriend? And then the rest of the movie is just like, oh, there's a fire. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, whatever. I actually I didn't recognize her as Faye Dunaway because I I've never seen, as far as I recall, a Faye Dunaway movie, which is baffling. But I actually quite liked Richard Chamberlain's wife so that's kind of the the jared kushner character as morgan very accurately described him i actually thought that while watching the movie because he's very sort of slim and good looking and he's got the job because he's the brother-in-law of the guy who owns the building and he's clearly a total shit stain um but his wife is very kind of fun and uh a little bitchy and she gets introduced sort of I don't know. She's, she she just has like a lot more personality. So there are like some decent female characters in this. I wouldn't say the film is like particularly sexist. But Faye Dunaway's character was like, why is, why? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, like there are quite a few women. Several of the men are clearly incompetent or sort of corrupt or bad, you know. But... The last 45 minutes or so very much revolve around Paul Newman and Steve McQueen being heroic. Oh, for sure. Which which is fine. I mean, that's what you want for a movie like this. I found it somewhat uninteresting, not for any, like, political reason, but just because the movie had been going on for so long by that point that I was a little bit out of energy. Um, It's just... It's just too long. There's no reason for it to be two hours and 45 minutes long. It never gets boring exactly. It's just that there's no real reason for it to be that long because the reason it is that long is just that there's more bits. Like there's another thing. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's like the writer was like, we need to show more amazingly specific skills that the firefighters (laughs) have. Did you know that firefighters know how to safely operate plastic explosives? Did you know that firefighters could use helicopters in half a dozen different ways? Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's actually like, I was thinking like while watching it, I was like, this is the only movie I've ever seen that's like firefighter propaganda, whereas like every film is police propaganda. But in this, I'm like, you know what? I feel like probably firefighters do have a lot of useful skills. Whereas every movie is like, police are so good at their jobs. Look at how amazing they are at like shooting guns and not missing and like doing the law. And in real life, you're like, well, this is not how that works. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I fully support firefighter propaganda by all means. It just probably could have been a little bit tighter structurally. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, two and three quarter hours, just no. Yes. But whatever. We both enjoyed it. Yeah, I I had a great time. And I do think the writing is not deep, right? Like, all the characters have, like, one personality trait. But they have one personality trait in a way that is done very effectively, Like, you know, I mean, you had some trouble differentiating between some of the white guys. I didn't. But even someone like the Fred Astaire character is not complicated. But, like, you know what his deal is. And, like, Newman, not that complicated. But, like, he's Paul Newman. You you get the point, right? One enjoys Paul Newman. One enjoys Fred Astaire. And, like, the Dunaway was the only one where I was like, I really have problems with this. I mean, it wasn't like it massively affected my enjoyment of the movie, but she, they clearly had cut her the short shrift there. But basically everybody else, it's not particularly complicated writing psychologically like at all, but they distinguish them just enough so that you're like, okay, I get what all these people are doing 
And the point of the movie is the spectacle, but you have just enough of like an association with each of the characters and they're all good actors. And a lot of them are like big, big movie star actors and so have a lot of presence. And so you're kind of swept along with it because you don't need anything psychologically deep from them. You just need enough to be able to sort of follow what's going on. Right. And, um, I thought that it was really effectively done in that way. And the stunts and the action stuff is really, really well shot. I was really glad to have to have watched it, even if it was a bit a bit overlong. And I mean Paul Newman is is the best. Alright, well, a huge thanks again to Megan for having us watch this. This was a ton of fun. As ever, if you would like to have us watch a movie of your choosing, you can do that on our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. So also on our Patreon, we will have a mini-sode, which we're about to record. It'll probably be basically the length of a full-length episode because they always are. Um, On the new Netflix film, The Old Guard, which uh, stars Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane and various... Very popular movie at the moment. Yes, various other people as sort of immortal superhero types. I think we liked it less than everyone. So it'll be a slightly dissenting opinion. I definitely didn't like pan this movie. And I have absolutely full respect for everyone who's enjoying it. I didn't hate it at all, but I definitely, I thought it was kind of interesting in its failures. And I thought some things about it worked, but I didn't love it. And I thought that would part of, be part of the reason why it would be interesting to talk about, because I've seen a lot of the responses that are just like, this is perfect. And I did not think that was the case. So... I thought our our thoughts would be interesting, and we haven't really talked about it yet, so you'll be getting a fresh take if you subscribe to our Patreon to listen to that. And next week, we will be watching the film Come and See, which is a Soviet film from 1985, which was just recently um, inducted into the Criterion Collection. It is on the Criterion channel at the moment. This is another uh, Patreon request. Known as one of like the most miserable war movies you can watch. So that's going to be a big swing from this week, Donald. I mean, iconic and beloved. And like, it's the favorite movie of Ari Aster. Yeah. Who made uh, Hereditary and Midsommar. So um, that is definitely kind of, that's my in on this one. The, the first sentence of the Criterion edition, like the blurb is... This legendary film from Soviet director Elam Klimov is a senses-shattering plunge into the dehumanizing horrors of war. <laughs> I laugh in heart. I love our listeners. The stuff, they, they continue to challenge us, and often I'm puzzled by those challenges, but in the end, it's always rewarding. <laughs> I mean, this is a movie I had meant to see. I think it was one of the last things that was at Film Forum before everything shut down. And it's meant to be incredible. So it was something I had I yeah. had wanted to see. It's just clearly going to be a bit punishing. So we figured that we'd do Towering Inferno, a fun blockbuster one week, and then this, which will be a bit bit rougher the next. So um, if you're in America, you can watch that again on Criterion Channel. And it's sure to be streaming elsewhere because it's a classic. So yeah, let's come and see. Gav, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>